Judges chapter 13, verse 24, speaking of Samson's mother, it says that the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtel. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces, as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. In the first few messages of, of this series on the story of Samson, I've said it more than once, and I'm just going to say it again, probably to remind myself, but also for those that haven't been here. In my opinion, Samson has the strangest testimony of anybody in the Bible, except maybe for Judas. Samson is a believer. He doesn't act like it. Matter of fact, if it wasn't for Hebrews chapter 11, I would think Samson was in hell, if I can put it bluntly. But Hebrews chapter 11 puts him actually not in hell, but in the hall of faith. And yet when you look at the story of his life, it is a story of a constant, never-ending tug of war between the spiritual destiny of Samson and the impulses of his flesh. And now that he is coming upon the scene in the very first few handful of verses that describe him, you see the war all over his destiny beginning already. He is a bewildering, bewildering person to study, and yet as I look at him and I watch his ups and downs and ins and, ins and outs that we'll see in the series, the one thing that I see more than anything is the grace of God to Samson and how God is able to make a man stand even when that man seems hell-bent on falling over and over and over again. And so when we're looking at his life, friends, we have to remember that the story of Samson, if nothing else, is meant to uh, enlarge our understanding of the immeasurable grace of God towards those that I call serial stumblers, those that seem to stumble and stumble and stumble. So if you happen to be a serial stumbler, I'm, I'm sure it's nobody in here has ever been one, but for the sake of the people that will watch on TV, maybe it's them. So and, and for their sake, let me just say, serial stumblers, we sang it tonight, you're never going to let me down. 
We've talked about he never gives up on us. He never fails us. His love never fails. That is the message of the gospel. That is the message of grace. And that is the message that we see kind of oozing out of the pores of Samuel's testimony. So let's begin to study him, though. Go back up into the end of chapter number 13. And let's just go ahead and acknowledge this, because this is about as good as it gets for Samson's life. And it's only two verses, and it's the first two verses that describe him. And we see an encouraging beginning for Samson's life. First of all, let's hit this really quickly. Prophetic destiny was attached to Samson. Here it says in verse number 24 that the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. Now, remember what happened up to this. The Lord visits Samson's mother. Her name is never given. I call her Mrs. Manoah because her husband's name is Manoah. So the Lord visits Mrs. Manoah, tells her that she's going to have a boy, that that boy is going to be the future deliverer of Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. He's going to be the national hero. Now, this is an amazing story because this woman and her husband have been trying to have a baby for some amount of time and it never succeeded. And so after 40 years of national oppression by the Philistines, after this woman crying out to God and finding out months after month that yet again she's not pregnant uh, the Lord visits her says you're going to have a baby and he's going to be the one who begins to deliver Israel from the oppressive hand of the Philistines so she and her husband through normal procreative means uh, uh, enjoy a night with each other and what comes forth is the conception of this baby boy we read nothing about the 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 the, the joy of spreading the news the, in the community, in the family. We read nothing about the morning sickness. We read nothing about the growing belly. We read nothing about the sore ankles. We read nothing about the, the, the night before the birth. All we know is that immediately the narrative transfers into this. She had a son. She named him Samson. Notice that. She named him. Manoah didn't name the boy. Manoah, quite honestly, very subtly, doesn't seem like a very engaged husband and father. But Mrs. Manoah names him Samson, and the word indicates little sun, S-U-N, little light. He's just a ray of light into their lives. And remember, this birth was the fulfillment of a prophetic word, and they had to wait a long time. Uh, very quickly, some of the best things God has for you and for me, he's going to tell you to wait. He, he, it doesn't nullify the word. It doesn't nullify the promise. But some of the most precious things that he promises you don't come in a microwaved moment. You have to wait. Now, look at what it says as Samson begins to grow in verse number 24. We see that the touch of God began to characterize Samson. His life began to reveal the touch of God. And the Bible says that the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And so you've got the natural and you've got the spiritual. You've got him growing as a young man. You've got him getting older. We're not told how old he is, but his childhood is not really framed up for us. His adolescence is not framed up for us. But we are told that according to the natural means of life, he's beginning to grow. He's getting older. He's getting bigger. But notice this. The Bible goes out of its way to say God's hand of blessing was on him. So during those formative years, the hand of the Lord began to be on Samson in ways that aren't described. But look into verse 25. Now it gets a little bit more specific. This is where the story begins to take on some shape. The power from God begins to arise in Samson. Notice verse 25. The Bible says this, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, it's the same Holy Spirit that dwells inside of every believer, yet at that time, the Spirit of the Lord was ministering through Samson, and he began to stir him, began to stir his heart 
in uh, Mahanadan, and that was between Zorah and Eshthel. Now, I don't care about the geography, frankly. Look it up in your Bible. Have fun with it. That's not my point. This is what I want to talk about. There was a moment in Samson's life where he began to recognize the stirring of the Lord within him. It's a very descriptive phrase, and if you've been through that first season in your life, where you're being blessed by God, you're growing, life is progressing, but then there is an an initial season, an inaugural season in our walks with the Lord where our, 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 our walk of faith begins to take on a different fragrance, a different sensation, a different dynamic. We move from just thinking of the Lord to sensing the Lord. Doesn't mean we quit thinking about them, but it moves from just our brains, just our intellects, just our minds, and we begin to sense him. We begin to sense his presence. We begin to sense his, his wooing, his pulling. We begin to sense, as it's written here in the Hebrew, his stirring. And the word is a rare word in Scripture. It's not used a lot, the Hebrew word, but sometimes it's, it's translated as trouble. He began to be agitated on the inside. Something was stirring within him that was potent and it was powerful, yet it was leaving him in a place of discomfort. So God was moving in Samson's life. More specifically, the Bible says, the Holy Spirit was moving in him, began to stir him. Now, friends, I want to tell you something. I believe that is a crucial place in a man or a woman's life or a young person's life. Because I have learned that the Bible commands me not to grieve the Spirit and not to quench the Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit begins to stir us, connected to that stirring is the expectation of God that we will cooperate with the stirring. That we won't resist the stirring. That we won't try to own the stirring. That we won't try to pony up and be in control of the stirring. But that we will simply be the one who is stirred. And as God begins to do that, friends, I'm going to tell you, he does it in individuals, he he does it in families, he does it in schools, like uh, uh, seminaries and ministries, and he does it in local houses. It is when he begins to, to move in such a way that multiple people in a church, in a ministry, are starting to sense the presence of God swirling and stirring and moving. And oftentimes those people are saying, the status quo is not enough. I can't do church as normal anymore. I can't live the status quo, mundane, normal, average, intellectual Christian life. I need more. And so when that begins to happen, there's a call attached to that. Don't simply acknowledge the stirring, be stirred. Don't try to own it. Don't try to resist it. Don't try to back off from it. Don't even try to explain it. For the love of the Lord, don't try to explain it. Just be stirred and cooperate with it. Samson, in these moments, my best guess, giving the benefit of the doubt is, is that as God the Spirit began to stir in him, Samson was stirred. He probably didn't know what to do with it. Let's let's remember this. Samson had no mentor. He had nobody teaching him how to be the judge of Israel. He had no priest with him. He had no prophet with him. Israel's in a state of apostasy and decline. They're oppressed by a national enemy. Samson is a one-man show. He never led a military. He he fought every single battle by himself with the power of God. And so when we're looking at this, he's experiencing the stirring, but there's no indication that anybody else is being stirred. It's a lonely feeling. Some of you have been in situations, maybe it's in your family, you're being stirred, nobody else is. Maybe it's in your church, you're being stirred, nobody else is. And stirred people are quite often misunderstood. They're the kooky, loud, manifesting fanatic. And they disturb the peace. 
And yet what, what we need to remember is maybe we're in a season where we're not stirred, but God is stirring other people. Don't settle what he stirs. Don't try to settle down what he's stirring up. And so whatever Samson was doing, the main thing is, is that the scriptures record that God began to move in his life intentionally, and he was going to move through his life intentionally. So here's his start. He was destined by God prophetically to be the deliverer of Israel. He was growing in God. The Bible says he was at that stage being blessed by God. He was being stirred by God, and he was being strengthened by God. So what's he going to do with it? Well, let me tell you, I'm just going to go ahead and burst the bubble as if you had never read his story. He poorly stewards what God is doing in his life. He does not guard the anointing. He actually squanders the stirring. And this is the repeated cycle in Samson's life that we have to learn from. Listen, if Samson could take the stage tonight in this room, he would say, I hope every single one of you learn from how poorly I stewarded the work of God in my life. He would tell you, now listen, he's forgiven, he's graced, he's in glory, have no doubts about it. But if he could testify to us right now as we're studying his life, he would say when the Lord begins to stir in your life, when he begins to stir in your church, you need to steward much more in excellence your stirring than I did mine. So let's go further because almost immediately things take a nosedive. Here's the immediate concern that we have for Samson's heart. Go down into verse, uh, chapter 14. First of all, fellas, listen up. This is not new news, but we're going to hit it because it's all throughout Samson's life. We see danger for Samson. Look in verse 1 of chapter 14. The scripture says he goes down to Timnah. It's about four or five miles from where he lives. And in Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, let's just stop there because Samuel we're going to see throughout his life, had a problem with the lust of the eyes. He had a, apparently an, an elevated sexual appetite. And he, he was driven at times by what he saw. Do you remember when Job made the covenant with his eyes that he would never look on a maiden, a young woman? Samson was the exact opposite. It seems like he lived with eyes that could not cease from adultery. He was oftentimes drawn to women by what they see. Now listen, uh, we're not to be prudes. God made women beautiful. Uh, there, there is um, a normal expectation for a male to be attracted to a female. When he is seeing her with his eyes, the Lord made the woman to look pleasing to the man. So I'm not faulting him for being male, but I'm faulting him because that became the predominant motivator in his life, at least in this chapter. You see, he wasn't the only one, though. I mean, it's not just a male thing, and it's not just a sexual thing. The, the original sin in the garden came from when Eve saw the fruit. She looked at it and she longed for it. You've got Lot when he saw the, the plains that would house Sodom and Gomorrah and he, Abraham was saying, pick which land you want. Lot looked down, he saw the well-watered plains and he says, I think I'm going to take that because it pleases my eyes. You've got Achan. Do you remember when they were going in to move into the land and Achan saw the spoils of the war that he was forbidden to take, but he looked at the gold and he looked at the garments and he said, I see them and I want them. And then, of course, you've got David and his infamous gazing upon Bathsheba as she bathed on the rooftop and David's whole life took a downturn from that point. And that just brings us to the place of, of Samson's testimony. He's got the power of God. He's got the stirring of the Lord within, but he goes down into a city that is owned by the Philistines and there's something about the allure of the forbidden Philistine woman 
And then he sees one of those forbidden women, and his eyes start registering and sending signals into his brain, and he decides, I'm going to have her. She's going to be mine. This, um, in and of itself, is not abnormal for a guy. But what, what, what we need to remember is, is this famous biblical truth that to whom much is given, much is required. He's got a calling on his life. He's got the stirring of the Spirit of God within him. He's got a prophetic destiny that he knows about. His mom didn't keep it secret. The Lord came to us, Samson, and said that you would grow up to be the deliverer of Israel. We don't know how it's going to happen, but you have a prophetic destiny. You have a calling on your life. God has given you this assignment. And so this man is not operating in a sense of holy stewarding of God's purpose for his life. He's acting like any other man. And it's going to get him in big trouble more than once in his life. Beyond this issue he has with his eyes, look at the rebellion in his heart in verse 2 and 3. We can see the rebellion here. So he comes up and he tells his parents, I saw, notice the repeating of the word, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines of Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife, he commands his parents. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the, daughters, among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson says to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. You see, he's being driven by what he sees. I've already established that point, but it's right there in the scripture. The Bible is trying to tell us through the actual wording that what is going on with Samson is he's not being led by the Spirit, he's being driven by what he sees. And he's, he's falling like so many other countless males, have, not just men, but we're talking about him. So, so many men have fallen into this trap despite the constantly repeated warnings of scripture. I mean, the, the Lord says to every generation of men in every culture, this is a common trap and it is very successful that the enemy lays. He makes sure that your lust in your flesh is provoked by parading before you what will, what will kind of um, attach itself to those longings. And so I'd love to blame it all on the devil, but friends, let me tell you, there's so much awareness of this in the church that we really can't blame the devil anymore. We need to own it and say, yeah, when this happens, it's because I didn't steward the purpose in my life, the calling in my life. I didn't treasure it as much as I treasured a moment of pleasure, a glance, a look, a longing, a tarrying at the forbidden. But beyond all of that, it's so strong that he dishonors his mother and father. This is their only child, by the way. They didn't have another one. And he's adult now. You know, I don't want to read between the lines, but sometimes when a child is born late in life and he's the only child and the parents know they're not going to get another one, he gets a little spoiled. He gets a little bit extra. He, he gets a, a, a lot of allowance because they, they just treasure him and they treasure him and he's the prize. He's the little ray of sunshine in their life, but he's a grown man now and his parents make a very reasonable spiritual request. They said, Samson, why are you going to the enemy? Is there not one among the Hebrews? One in our clan, one among the Hebrews, one, in, one of our own people that, that, that you could go and, and, and we could arrange that marriage, Samson. Why do you have to go to the ones of the, the forbidden people that are actually oppressing us? 
He wants a daughter of the enemy to be his woman. And he commands his parents to do it. And when his parents reason with him according to the principles of, of their faith, he just looks his dad straight in the eyes, and he, he, it's almost like, it almost reads like this. You could paraphrase it. Hey, Dad, I'm not asking. Go get her for me. Now, I don't know what kind of relationship there was between Mr. Manoa and, and Samson, but it obviously appears to me that his parents end up obeying the child. Now, he's a grown-up, and he's got prophetic destiny, but by the, uh, the, in, in the economy of God, He's to submit to his mother and his father. He's to honor his mother and his father. Just a real quick word there. Uh, the American families flip straight upside down where, where parents seem subservient to their children and they've idolized their children and they've made little G gods out of their children. Just a word, especially to those of us that are still raising children. Uh, let's fulfill both our role in the home, but let's make sure our kids do the same. And kids, if you're in here tonight and you want blessing upon your life, God gives you one specific command for your childhood. Honor your father and mother so that it'll be well with you all of your days. And that's a promise that God loves to keep. So the rebellion is there, that the danger of the lust of the eyes is there. But here's what blows me away. And this appeals to that part of me that is just so, so um, what's the right word? Just so connected and aligned with Reformed theology and the sovereignty of God. When we look in verse number four, listen to what the word of God says. Now, Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, the father and mother, did not know that it was from the Lord. What was from the Lord? Samson's rebellion was actually going to be used by God for God to fulfill the purposes. That it was from the Lord for God was seeking, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines because at that time they ruled over Israel. Now, let me blow your mind. Can I do that? Good. So Samson's guilty, Samson's sinning, Samson, Samson is rebelling, Samson is lusting, Samson is exercising self-will, Samson is not being teachable, Samson is actually breaking off from the commandments of God, and the Bible says that in this demand to have this woman to be his wife, the Bible describes it as it being from the Lord. Why? Because God was going to sovereignly use Samson's rebellious, wayward heart that Samson, by the way, is accountable for, but God was going to take even Samson's rebellion and weakness and intentionally use it to accomplish God's big picture purposes. Now, a lot of us don't like that because we assume that that makes God either hypocritical or an endorsement or an endorser of Samson's carnality and sin. No, you just go ahead and let God be God. Yeah, you, just, you do really well just to let God be God and let your Bible say what your Bible says. And your Bible pictures the Lord. It doesn't picture him. It clarifies it. It communicates to us that God is sovereign. We sang it tonight. He makes all things work together for our good. So the good of Israel is that Samson will one day deliver the people. And God is going to use Samson's desire to get connected to the Philistine people. God's going to say, well, I was going to get him in there one way or another. And this is going to be the way that I choose. Now, what do we learn from that? Well, I can tell you what we don't learn. We don't learn that we can be reckless and careless with obedience. Uh, this is not permission for you to go out and do whatever you want because God's sovereign and he'll work it all out. Um, <laughs> we're still obligated to not tempt the Lord our God. And so we're not to go out and, um, you know, pull a Romans chapter 6 and, you know, just sin so God's grace can abound. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. So what are we talking about? We're talking about that abyss of the human emotion that when we've messed up, 
when we've fouled up, when we've sinned, when we've blown it, when we've rebelled, when we've dishonored, when we have lusted, when we have morally crashed, relationally crashed, inwardly crashed, or publicly crashed. There is nothing in Scripture that gives a hint of an indication that God looks at our implosions and says, wow, now I can't do anything with you. Brothers and sisters, do you know that heaven will be populated 100% with redeemed failures? Every, yeah, y'all aren't with me tonight. You got some time. Redeemed failures. Everybody there. Every single, matter of fact, in order to become a Christian, the first requirement is you must admit that you have failed. You can't even be a Christian until you come to the place where you, you recognize I have sinned against the holy God. I am in big, big trouble. I need his help. And it's the number one requirement. And so after our salvation, though, wouldn't it be nice if, if, if we never sinned again? If we never failed again? If we never struggled again? If we never rebelled again? If we never lusted again? If we never whatevered again? The reality is, is that we are in a sanctification process. So as we follow Jesus, we become less like we were. But the best that I can tell, in spite of some people's earnest desire to talk about sinless perfection on this earth, the best I can tell is that we don't actually become perfectly like him until we see him. And so between your salvation and your glorification, get used to sanctification. And when you are being sanctified, on some of those days, you're going to be cooperating. You're going to be cruising. You and the Holy Spirit, it's going to be like the, the three-legged race. You're going to be in perfect unison. You're going to be winning the race. You're going to be doing awesome stuff. And on other days, you're going to be flat on your back, and he's going to have to be carrying you the whole way. All I'm trying to say is this. God is not intimidated by our past failures. He's not intimidated by the flaws in our testimony and the things that we've wrecked in the past. If I stood up here tonight and listed one one-hundredth of the regrets, you wouldn't want me to pastor you if I told you all the things I've done in my life. You wouldn't want to listen to me preach. You say, well, why are we? Well, because you got nobody else tonight. <laughs> the reality is this. Samson was blowing it, and God was saying, I got this. I got this. I just want to make that pastoral application for those of you that are still punishing yourself for times where you've blown it. Listen, honor the Lord by trusting that he brings beauty from the ashes, that he will find the diamond in the dung heap. He is a master of going into the midst of our failures and bringing out jewels from it if we will simply yield to him. Samson, uh, is not yielded at this point, and quite frankly, we do not see him yielded anywhere between the last two verses of chapter 13 and the moment of his death. Throughout the rest of Samson's story, it is him falling and failing, falling and failing, struggling and reaping what he sowed. And yet, he, there he is. I don't want you to forget it. In the, backs of the back of uh, the book of Hebrews, we're told to look at him as an emblem of faith. So part of faith, friends, is recognizing your failures, your sins, your mistakes, your fumbles, and not making them bigger than God. And refusing to oversize what's wrong with your story and undersize what's glorious about his story. So be encouraged tonight. That was actually to encourage you. It was to bless you. 
It was to bring some fresh kingdom air into your lungs so you can say, you know, kingdom air, grace tastes a lot better than guilt. You know, grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration, it just smells better than condemnation and accusation and, and fear. And so there are times where God will just have us look at our lives and just he'll whisper to us, hey, Samson wasn't even cooperating with me, and yet I took his colossal mistake and used it as the entry point to accomplish my will, not only for Samson, but for the entire nation of Israel. And that's the rest of his story. So go down into verses 5 and 6 with me. So we're going to look, look at this noteworthy lesson from his life. Here we go. Trouble finds Samson. So Samson went down with his father and his mother to Timnah. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Now let me paint the scene. The girl that he wants lives in Timnah. Apparently at this point, his mother and father have acquiesced to Samson and have said, okay, we'll go down and arrange the marriage. So Samson's seen her, but he's never spoken with her yet. So they're going to her hometown, and they're going to start making arrangements. And somewhere down the road, Samson's parents go one way, and Samson goes venturing off into the vineyard. Now, do you remember his Nazarite vow? Do you remember one of the conditions of the Nazarite vow? Stay away from the vine. Not only the drink of the vine, but stay away from the raisins, stay away from the grapes, stay away from the vine. Now, we're not told that Samson plucked any grapes, but it's just a picture of the young man who maybe technically isn't going to sin, but he sure is going to get as close to it as he possibly can. And it never ends well. Guys, let me just remind us, and this may be unnecessary for many in the room, but um, I just think it's good to speak it into the atmosphere The goal in life for the Christian is not to see just how close he or she can get to sinning without actually sinning. Most people don't keep that mark. They get right up to it. They're hanging on the tightrope. They're feeling good. They're like, yeah, this is awesome, man. And then all of a sudden they whoop. And bad things happen on that misstep. Samson's in a vineyard. He's surrounded by yet another element of his calling that he is forbidden to violate. And then all of the sudden, as he is distanced from his parents, he's walking the the pathways there in the vineyard. The Bible just says out of nowhere, a young lion comes out of nowhere and starts roaring at him. Now, Samson's life is going to be characterized by chaos like this, and most of it you're going to find out is self-induced. But this is one that he really didn't have a whole lot to do with unless we want to say, hey, bro, if you had been where you were supposed to have been, you never would have been in the presence of the man-eating lion. Now, if you want to make that application, I won't fight you on it. But this is a no-no for Nazarites, and he's a Nazarite. He's not allowed to be anywhere near the fruit of the vine. He's not allowed to touch a dead body. By the way, he's about to, and it's not just a human body. He's not allowed to come near any dead carcass. And he's not allowed to cut his hair. And all three of those elements are violated in Samson's life. And most of them are his own, all of them are his own fault. So look down at verse number 6. In the midst of Samson being where he isn't supposed to be, rebelling and lusting, look at verse number six. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. God remained faithful to Samson even in the state of Samson being completely unfaithful to God. Do you see why I say his story is bewildering? 
Doesn't that violate your sense of right and wrong? Isn't there, come on, y'all relax a little bit, okay? This is not trick questions. Y'all are like hung up on, just, just exhale. The, I'm thinking, okay, Samson's in big trouble. He is, he's a bad boy. He is disobedient. He is playing with fire in the vineyard. He's going after some chick that he's not supposed to be going after. He's rebelled against his mother and his father. And here comes the lion. Samson, you're done for. You are dead, man. You are about to meet your doom. Why? Well, because God is a payback God, right? God's the payback God. God meets out justice. And when people do bad, they deserve bad things to happen. We're good at applying that to everybody else's story. But if that was true and lived out, <laughs> man, I'm just going to cut loose. Jesus, give me boldness tonight. If, if that was true, friends, we would all be in a sorry and eternal heap of trouble if God's the payback God. And so there's something within me that hesitates when instead of God letting the lion eat Samson, and displaying his holy judgment and wrath against sin. And by the way, if God had chosen to do that, God wouldn't be diminished in his godhood a bit. He'd be just. He'd be right. That's not what God does. What does God do? God fills Samson with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you don't believe me, let's just go back to our Bibles. Let's just, let's just read it again. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. I mean, it's like a hurricane of the Holy Spirit began to fill him up first time in his life that we've ever seen it we've seen him stirred but this is a phrase that is saying the holy spirit comes on him like powerful wind or powerful waves it hits him it's a very strong word in the hebrew i believe it is the hebrew word salah and and if, if i'm not mistaken and it hits him hard to the point that when he he has no weapon but it's either the lion's going to die or Samson's going to die. And the Bible says when he takes hold of the lion, that he tears it apart like he was breaking meat off of a cooked goat that had just come off the fire. He just, boom, it's done. So here we hit an interesting point. Samson's accountable for everything that he's doing wrong. But when God makes a decree, and when God is heaven-set, on fulfilling his plan, he will choose to use whomever he chooses to use. Now, this is both an encouragement for us, but it's also a warning. Why? How many of you have, have, have sat under a spiritual leader that you know is deeply flawed, if not a violator of integrity? How many have we heard of that have been... Um, Sorry, my tablet's talking to me. How many have we heard of? And we know God mightily used him. He used him to heal. He used him to preach. He used him to win converts. He used this person to disciple. He used this person to raise up massive amounts of money for kingdom ventures. He used that person in our own lives that we were greatly impacted. And then we find out after the fact that this individual was wrapped up in some form of sin, some loss of integrity, that they weren't who they seemed to be. And we, we can be tempted to think, was any of that real? And the answer is, yes, it was real for you. It was real for the people that God was ministering to through a vessel that was not fit to be used. But God says, in spite of the lack of honor in the vessel... 
I'm still going to put my treasure in it and I'm going to spill it out on others. So I've been encouraged by that over the years. I used to be one of those guys that, man, I, 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 was, I was super suspicious of all people that wanted to influence me or teach me or lead me. I, want, I wanted to know everything I could about them before I, I started receiving from them because I didn't want any taint on me. And then eventually I realized that to some degree, every, there's only been one perfect preacher. And they crucified him. So anybody that leads us as flawed, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, isn't it amazing and super gracious of God to use people in our lives and bless us and bring giftedness to us and do great things in our lives in spite of the fact that they weren't people of integrity. I'm also going to warn us. The temptation is because God's blessing your giftedness that you think he's ignoring your lack of character. Samson was gifted. Samson was being used of God. Samson had no character. And it's very easy when we see results, when we see fruit, when we feel the surge of the Spirit, it's very easy to assume that God is never going to address that out-of-alignment place of our character, that he's just okay with it because you're valuable to the kingdom. And friends, I'm going to tell you something. There's this little meeting that we've all got coming up. It's called the Judgment Seat of Christ, where everything we've ever done in the name of the Lord is going to be tested by fire. And the Bible says that there's going to be some smoke on that day. I'm going to tell you, I'm, there are days when I think about that, and I'm like, I don't want to think about that today. Because he not only tests what you did, he tests why you did it. And he tested in the context of everything else that was going on in your life. And so we just need to be both warned and encouraged. Encouraged that God can use imperfect people in your life to do great work. And it doesn't invalidate all the stuff that God did if you find out later on down the road that the person through whom he did it was flawed or even a person of dishonor. It doesn't take away what God did in your life. And then on the other side of it is let's all be warned because giftedness is celebrated in our culture, but character isn't so much celebrated anymore, is it? All right, enough of that. Let me get down. I've got like five minutes. That's in preacher time. But, um. So God remains faithful to Samson, and then so he kills the lion. God doesn't abandon him, even though Samson's walking in compromise. But God had decreed to use Samson to begin to destroy the Philistines, and this plan's not going to be undone. God's plan is not going to be undone in spite of Samson's wavering walk with God. So in verse, at the end of verse 6, we see this inner conflict enters Samson. He did not tell his mother and his father what he had done to the lion. Why? Because, again, he's breaking the Nazarite vow. He's not allowed to touch a dead carcass. Now, maybe there's a little latitude here because the lion was going to eat him. But, but he goes back to it, too. The point being is this. All of a sudden, Samson is giving himself to things that are not consistent with God's purpose and God's calling on his life. And so Samson begins to enter into this conflict that we're going to see go on throughout his life. So go down to the last couple of verses, and let's look at this uh, final section for tonight, and then we'll go home. This is a disturbing pattern in Samson's life. So here he is. Look at his self-will. The biggest sin in Samson's life was not lust. It was self-will. He was a self-willed man. It's attached to lust in verses 7 and 8. So he goes down and he talks with the woman. So now he's chatting her up. This is going to be his woman. And she was right in his eyes. 
And after some days, he returned to take her. Now listen, I'm not going to put a puritanical filter on what the scripture is revealing here. Samson was sexually and physically attracted to this woman. He saw her. He thought on her. He wanted to experience in, in the body what he had imagined in the mind. And so he says, gotta have her. So he gets in there and does a little Samson groove talk with her and everything. The marriage is arranged. And he's going to come back now. And they're going to have whatever wedding would be set up. And so that's where we are beginning to see the pattern evolve. Samson sees something, and what he sees, he's got to have. In the name of Jesus, brothers, hear me. In the name of Jesus, make a covenant with your God about your eyes. It really doesn't get easier. I had a, a man in his 60s. We were talking about this common deal. I talked to my 12-year-old son about it. I talked to my dad who's in his 70s about it. Uh, listen, it's just a male issue. It's all, it's all over the Bible. It's not new. It's not 20th and 21st century. We just have a, more, a greater inundation with it. But the reality is it's a heart issue. And, and, and so whether it's a young man or an older man, guys, you have to starve lust. You, you can't even give one millimeter to it. Man, I, I'm, 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 my inner fundamentalist is wanting to come out right now. I don't even think it's fundamentalism, but guys, let me tell you something. When you tolerate this stuff coming into your eyes through television, just the commercials, when, when we, we're okay with it, that's how benumbed we are to it now. I am going to channel my inner fundamentalist because it's biblical. We, we, we allow this stuff to hit us and because it's not full-on penetration pornography, we, we don't feel any kind of qualms about it. But that's where it starts, man. And every time we give our eyes to something sensual or sexual, as benign as it might be compared to full-born pornography, we, we, we're, we're lowering our guard. And we normalize this issue that throughout scripture is the repeated flashing red light from God saying, careful, careful, careful. And our culture is not helping us with it. So if we're waiting on somebody to do it for us, you're going to keep falling. But if you'll just own it because you can, because the spirit of God doesn't lust after women. And if we're walking in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so, brothers and sisters, listen, it's, it's, there's, there's not a trick to it. It's crucifying the flesh and the affections and the lust thereof daily and purposefully entering into it. Samson wasn't going to do that. He, he takes what he sees. That's just the way he's wired. So it's not only lust, it's pride and self-will. He turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. He went back to... to to get a second look at his great victory over the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And he scraped it out in his hands, which is rather gross, and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and, and they ate. You know, maybe I can be wrong. You don't have to agree with me on this. But there's a reason why he turned aside to go back and look at the trophy of his victory. 
my guess is that there was some kind of subtle pride that he wants to go back and see what a tough dude he is. Let me go back to that place of the lion. And when he gets to the lion, the carcass is dried out and some honeybees have made a nest in there. And so what does he do? He violates his Nazarite vow. He touches the dead body and scoops it out. He literally is willing to touch the place of death in order that he might experience the sweetness of a moment. And that's the nature of sin and temptation. That, that, that Satan says, honey, free honey, come get your honey. You love honey. Honey loves you. Come and get some honey. It's a honey fest. And the Holy Spirit says, but if you're going to taste it, you're going to have to touch death. Some old preacher once said he didn't get stung by the bees, but he did get stung by the honey. You see, friends, he violated, he knowingly violated that vow. That's why he didn't tell his parents where he got the honey. But he's eating the honey, he's enjoying the honey. Mom, Dad, have a little honey. Well, thank you, honey. And so they all, they all ate a little bit, and it just speaks of pride to me. It just speaks of self-will. He doesn't care what the expectations, what the guidelines, what the restrictions are. He doesn't care. He's just going to do what Samson wants to do, and that is a deadly place to be. So let me close it out with yet another unhappy verse, and then I'll send you home depressed. Here we go. Shame and self-will. Now watch it. Now he enters into his hiddenness. He did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. You see, that's the way sin is, and it's repeated so often in the Bible. Adam and Eve sinned, they became aware of their failure, what did they do? They hid. You got King David, he sins with Bathsheba, so what does he do? He hides via the plan to kill her husband, pretend the baby's his, bring her into his home, and Nathan the prophet says, yeah, you're exposed, you're the man. And then Samson, hey, I just got some honey for you guys, been thinking about y'all, got some honey Mom and dad may or may not have asked where did it come from. The reality is, is he wasn't going to tell them why. Because he's now, because he's self-willed and he's giving himself to his sinful impulses, he now has to live in hiddenness. So brothers and sisters, this is the journey we're going to go on with him. But this is the same guy that says, that, that God says, I'm going to use him to accomplish my purposes. We don't ever want to be Samson moving towards the future, but if you've lived like Samson in the past and you're here tonight listening with faith, then be encouraged because what God is doing is he's saying your story's not done yet. Your story's not done. This is not about our guilt and about our shame. Yeah, I'm forceful with you tonight because I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the principalities and powers and saying, leave us alone in the name of Jesus. I'm speaking to brothers and saying, guys, it's the same pit that a thousand men have fallen in that you know of stop walking there but ultimately i'm saying this god when we stumble when we fall when we samsonize ourselves you're the god of all grace the god of all mercy and the god of all compassion and the very fact that we're here tonight is evidence that god is saying i am not done with you yet do you want to resume our walk together so father in the name of jesus thank you for what we've learned tonight i don't want to lose this lord Lord, I pray for a double, doubly sealed anointing of this truth in my heart and my brother's hearts. Lord, bring a once and for all complete deliverance from the temptation 
of sexual lust via the eye gate in the lives of men and women, especially men. I believe that you are the deliverer and that we don't have to struggle with this in our lives. I thank you for the work that you've done in my life in the last 24 years. And Father, I love the fact that I can look at my brothers and say, there is full and free deliverance. So bring it, Jesus. Pursue us relentlessly. We don't want to squander the stirring and the anointing that you give. We ask it for the glory of the King and in his name, amen.